Have you all ever actually looked at the words of Christmas music and been like, that just doesn't seem right? Uh, For instance, Away in a Manger. Do we know the song? Can we sing it? Away in a manger. Okay. Here's the problem. Little Lord Jesus lays down his sweet head. I'll give you that one. The stars in the sky look down where he lay. The little Lord Jesus asleep? It's a baby. (laughs) Babies, babies don't sleep. Those of you who had them. There's the other one. Uh, And it keeps going. The cattle are lowering. The baby wakes. We'll go with that. Doesn't take much. But little Lord Jesus, no crying. He makes. Seriously. I dropped a fork last night in the sink. Both boys crying. It was a fork in the sink. And Carrie just kind of says, you are so loud. I was like, it's a fork. (laughs) I could be wrong, but something isn't right there. Then, silent night. All is calm. All is bright. Have those of you who have uh, been able to have birth, are things calm and, and right in a birth room? No, it is quite chaotic. It might be bright, uh, but there is, there is nothing calm in there. And then, sleep in heavenly peace. Maybe in about 5 to 18 years, there will be sleep in heavenly peace. But there's this thing we like to package the Christmas story and make it look all nice and neat. The shepherds come rolling in and with their fluffy little sheep that aren't dirty and mangy and gross. And the shepherds happen to be showered and well-groomed. And then, uh, when in reality, the sheep were disgusting and shepherds like to carry criminal records with them. And so this was the only job that they can get and they were probably smelly. We like to think that the, the, the manger was this kind of mother-in-law suite where they gave birth in. It was a dirty garage uh, where the cattle slept or where the dog would have slept if it was an outside dog. This story or this conception that we put on Christmas uh, to make it perfect actually hurts our view of Jesus. Because this little tiny sweet baby Jesus in six pounds and eight ounces watching its baby Einstein videos, learning about shapes and colors, this is not the real Jesus that was born. Jesus being born that night in a manger, in a garage that was dirty and cold, uh, and shepherds who were there with criminal records and not the type of people you want in the room, was a baby that was born into the middle of the largest disruption in the world. He caused it. His whole life before he was born was disruption after disruption. Mary's life was disrupted. 14 to 16 years old, virgin, guess what? You're pregnant. That's not going to go well. Disruption. Joseph, who had this amazing picture of what his life would be, all of a sudden Joseph gets a vision. Mary, your fiance, pregnant. This isn't what he had planned. Disruption after disruption. Jesus' birth, nothing about it was peaceful. It was a large kink in a lot of everybody's plans except for God's because God does something when it comes to our disruptions. The things that we think are going to ruin our lives forever are as actually God can use those things to say, watch the beauty that I can make come from this. The key is, in the middle of those disruptions, to be able to have an ear and an eye and a heart that will follow him. Because God can make the disruptions beautiful. 
And so today we're going to look at some disruptions. First, as we look at the Christmas story, we need to admit that there is a reality of a disruption around us. That disruptions occur. That this isn't just a beautiful, sanitized uh, uh, type of story and that following Jesus is not going to be the easiest way through. That the disruption is a reality. And then there's two ways we can go with disruption. We can either ignore it take the status quo, or we can surrender to it and see what God can do to it. But today, first we'll start with what a real, the reality of disruption is for us. Jesus says this when he said, uh, when he was talking about why he came, he goes, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace. I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. For I have come to turn mother of man against father, daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. I thought that was already a thing, but... He came to amplify that. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. Yet there are people who think that when they come to Jesus, everything is going to be fine and dandy with rose petals and everything. Nothing's going to hurt anymore. No one's going to get sick. But that's not the reality. Oftentimes, uh, the people who were worshiping Jesus one day were the same people who were trying to kill him the exact next day. His own disciples betrayed him. The entire city shouts Hosanna on Friday. And then the very, on the next uh, Saturday, they're saying, kill him. We don't want him anymore. He's not bringing what we want, the reality of what we want in the kingdom that we're looking for. This isn't what we signed up for. This isn't what we're looking for. This isn't the Messiah we want. So to death to him, crucify him. And then they said this, his blood will be on our children's hands. We don't care the ramifications of this. This is the type of thing that surrounds Jesus' life. And we feel this reality at the intersection with our culture. For some, I've seen the bumper sticker that says, Jesus is fine, but his followers are jerks. Have we seen that? Jerks is probably a, a sanitite, a, you know, a nicer way of saying what I've read. Uh, but they say this, Jesus is really popular. Jesus is cool. But Jesus is only cool when he agrees with me. He's only great when he lines up with my particular views on culture, politics, and theology. Uh, Jesus is fine as long as he doesn't move my stuff. And, and this is the reality that we come to. That following Jesus is going to cause some disruptions. There's going to be some pain that comes along with it. There's going to be some things that you don't agree with that Jesus is going to point to and say, this is wrong. It's going to be disruptive. And if Jesus is so cool, why did the Romans and the Jews line up to kill him? You don't kill the cool kid. He wasn't that great. I mean, if, if that regards, Jesus was disruptive. Peter has this lucrative fishing business. Fishing businesses were actually good, good businesses back then. They weren't this poor down and out. The fish that Peter would have caught would have been shipped to Rome as a, as a delicacy. Peter has a great fishing business. Leaves it. Disruption. Paul had a good thing going. He was lined up to be one of the chief teachers. Has this huge disruption. Gets called in to following Jesus. Matthew was probably a good IRS agent, made plenty of money, and now he's following Jesus. All of these people had major disruptions when it came to their life. Jesus called them out of something and into something else. And in, in, in order to find their lives, Jesus told them this, you're going to have to lose the one you have. There's a decision that we come to when it comes to Jesus. 
This decision to follow Jesus has been something that you see all through Scripture. God has called people from the very beginning to say, in Deuteronomy 30, he says it this way, I set before you life and death, blessings and curses. You can choose which way you want to go. There's going to be a disruption here. Joshua, it says the same thing in Joshua 24, 15. Choose life. You can either go along with this disruption, choose it, but there's a reality that there's a decision that we all have to make here. Jeremiah summarizes it. It says, this is what the Lord says. You stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you'll find rest for your souls. But you said this, we will not walk in it. There's a clear choice that we all come to in order to find rest and it comes through the disruption. Yet sometimes the people of Israel and us too, we don't pick what's best for us. We start to follow the sweet baby Jesus who is powerless to do anything instead of the disruptive Jesus that can turn over the tables of our lives. And we settle for that instead. And then the reality brings us to these intersections that we can either avoid or we can surrender. When Jesus brings a disruption into your life, when something doesn't go the way you planned it, you can either devoid it or you can surrender. The first way is to avoid it, to fight against it. And it's not often that you can look in the text and see King Herod as an example of this, but we're going to try today. King Herod is one of those people that you look at and you go, I'm going to do everything opposite of you. Do we ever have those people in our lives? Uh, the, the, the horrible bosses or the friends that try to give you advice and you go, I'm just going to do the opposite because it's not working well for you. And so this is what King Herod was. Herod was, the, was a, uh, a brutal king. And Matthew is trying to prove something here. Matthew writes these gospels. Uh, the gospels were all written in order to show Jesus to different audiences. And so Matthew is showing Jesus as king of the Jews. And in order to show him as king of the Jews, the first thing he does is he puts him right next to the, real, to the current king of the Jews. If Herod is the king, Jesus is the real king. And this is how they're different. The first thing you say here about Herod is he is a person of enormous power and influence. Matthew marks the time by his reign. In the time of King Herod is how the chapter starts. But then Matthew starts drawing our minds towards the type of king that Herod is. He's defined by murder and tyranny. He distrusted his friends and killed his brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, and even his wife because he thought that they were going to take his power from him. He had his sons executed for suspicion of a coup. When he was dying in the town of Jericho was where he lived, he was afraid that no one was going to mourn his death. And so he said, when I die, I want you to execute a bunch of influential, well-cared-for people in the city so that people will cry on my death day. This, it, they didn't go through with it because he was dead. They weren't, he wasn't going to follow his own rule after he's gone. But this was his plan. This is the type of king that Herod was. He was obsessive. He was insecure. He was bloodthirsty. And the story goes like this. We should know the story. The three wise men come. They get a, a, a vision of the, they follow the star and, and they go to King Herod to say, where's this new king? And all of a sudden King Herod's going, oh no, more competition. And he tells them to say, tells them when you find him, I want to worship him, read into that. I want to kill him. And so he, they say, we're, we're, tell, tell me where he is, and I'll, I'll do the same thing. And the wise men, luckily, were wiser than that. This is what he says when Herod realized that he was outwitted by the Magi. He became furious. 
and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in the vicinity who were two years old and under. Some historians wonder if one of these was one of his children. This is how insecure Herod was. In his frustrated rage, he was not able to, uh, to identify his rival, so he ordered the murder of people who might bring him any competition. And because of this, he, was, he represents something, someone to us who will do everything and anything to avoid the disruption that Jesus brings into our lives. He shows us that his actions are solely based on keeping his power and his position. And because of this, it's easy to say, oh, Herod is awful, and we like to put the badge on him that says, terrible person, then we'll in, we'll, we distance ourselves from them. But here's the thing. We all have a little bit of Herod in all of us. One of the most eye-opening things I went to, and I think I've talked about it here, was I was seeing a therapist for a while, and I was having trouble with someone in my life, and we were talking it out, and then she said the, 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 the phrase that haunts me. Well, I think you and this person are a lot alike. Oh, seriously? Give me all my money back. (laughs) But she was right. And so we can look at Herod and go, this person is just awful. And oftentimes we'll ignore the fact that we might have some things in common with Herod. Hopefully not the murderous rage part. But many of us will go to our extremes to keep the status quo in our lives. Herod represents the the thing in all of us that keeps us from changing. It's not just Herod, but we have the fear. We all have that fear. We see it in the rich young ruler who chose his reputation and social status over the call of Jesus. Judas, the one who betrays Jesus, chose money. Because he, Jesus wasn't going to deliver the kingdom that he wanted. We do the same thing. Anytime anyone comes face to face with Jesus, we're forced to choose Jesus' way or the way of comfort. Jesus' way or the way of power. Jesus' way or the way of ease. Am I going to forgive that person? Because bitterness is so much more easy. If, if, am I going to give up control? But faith is really, really difficult. Jesus says not to worry, but then, honestly, what am I going to think about? Jesus tells me uh, to take up my cross, but what about my comfort? Jesus tells me uh, to give up my habits, but those habits are who I am, and how, will I, how can I ever change that? And so we resist. We never change And we maintain the status quo. So there is a little bit of Herod in all of us. Unless you you and I are able to live our life with open hands, where we'll enter God's rest when it's offered, you and I will miss every bit of the peace that Jesus brings. Unless we are able to respond to God's disruptions freely to the point where it changes our lives, we'll miss it like Herod did like Judas did, like the rich young ruler did, and he walked away disappointed. This is the challenge in our lives. The other option we have, other to avoiding it and and keeping the status quo, is to surrender. None of us like that word surrender. It means give up, right? It's a military term. You're surrounded. You have no more moves. I have to give up. But we want to fight. We want our own way. And we see this attitude of surrender in Joseph and Mary. Uh, So Joseph, in verse 14... Joseph, he got up and he took the child uh, during the night 
<laughs> so he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. What had happened is the Magi had come to visit him. This is a few years later, uh, maybe six to 18 months after Jesus was, was born. The Magi come to their house in Jerusalem. They'd settled down. Things are getting normal, as normal as they could be with an infant. And so the, but they're getting back to the huge. And so maybe he's gone back to work. Mary's taking care of Jesus. One night, Joseph gets a dream. And in the dream, it says, take the baby and go to Egypt. This is after the Magi had come and warned him that Herod is after them. Take the baby and go to Egypt. Major disruption. Hadn't Joseph had enough disruption in his life? But this is what he did. So he got up. Those four words in that verse, those four words in verse 14, so he got up. There was no delay. I get the picture that Joseph was having one of those restless nights, maybe kind of like he did when he got the first word from the angel that Mary was pregnant. He was having one of those nights. He knows the voice. He gets up, maybe three o'clock in the morning, and says, we got to go. There was no delay. We got to go. So he got up. In Greek, it means he hustled. Not really, but we can say that it does. Don't let the facts get in the way of good story. He got up, he hustled, he moved. It was immediate. He didn't waste any time. He didn't second guess. He didn't argue. He got up in the middle of the night and he left. His changed, his plans changed. His heart was open, his hands were wide, wide open, and he left. Just when things got easy, just when things started to hit cruise control, we have to go to Egypt. For Joseph and Mary, this is a constant ease of, this is a constant season of disruption. That's normal for them. But now, look where they're having to go. This disruption leads them to Egypt. Egypt symbolizes things for uh, the Jews in that day that weren't really great memories. 400 years of slavery, a place where they were subjugated to some brutal treatments, making bricks every day. And so if you're Joseph and you're saying, you want me to go to where? You want me to go to Egypt? That place that we take time every year to celebrate leaving? You want me to go back? Okay, I'll go back. Do any of you have places like Egypt in your life? Places where you think of that have maybe caused some pain. Places that are filled with bad memories. The hospitals, that classroom, that office. Those places you would rather avoid, that job. And and imagine, you're here, you're well past that, and now God says, I want you to go back and work for that same company. I want you to go back to this place. And you're going, seriously? That's not good memories, and you're making me go back. Uh, In 2009, after our house burnt down, uh, I was still seeing that therapist that I wanted a refund from. And I was dating a therapist, Carrie, at the time. and, 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 And so I had two therapists, and they both told me, you're having some PTSD from the house burning down. It was a really traumatic experience. For, we don't need to go into it. We could talk about it later. But there was some real danger that I was in. And so I'm, it's a few months later. I'm over it. I'm over it. And uh, my therapist and Carrie, I think they colluded. And they said, you need to go see some, some like, you need a lot of help. 
because you're reliving this thing way too much. You can't even smell smoke without panicking. You need some help. And so I went to this doctor. I went to this specialist. And it was an EMDR treatment, which is fascinating. And she, she, got, she tells me about the way the brain handles trauma or the way my brain was handling trauma. I was very pleased to hear that there was a brain working. And, and she said that your, your brain processes trauma. Uh, and I, for you therapists in the room, I might be screwing this up. But she says your, your brain processes trauma and some Sometimes the trauma gets stuck and you haven't processed it through. So what she was going to do was make me go through the whole thing until I can get through the event without feeling the panic. And so she put these headphones on me and she told me to live the next, live that day over again. And then the headphones would beep on each side alternatingly. It was really kind of interesting. And so I started to talk it out. She goes, no, 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 don't talk. Just go through it in your brain, your memories process them. And so I would go through and I would talk and she would pause. She would watch me. It was kind of weird. She would watch me. And then she, when I reacted, she would say, tell me what's happening right now. And I said, well, I'm doing this. I'm, I have a garden hose and there's a wall of flame and I can't do anything about it. And she goes, okay, let's talk about it. And we did this a couple times and we processed the pain. We processed the loss. We processed the danger that we felt or that I felt. But it was a call for me. In order for me to be healthy, in order for me to get well, I had to go back to that place of pain, that memory, and relive it, every part of it, a number of times. I wish I could have just avoided it. I wish I could have been fine. But every session, I'd come out a little bit lighter. New details would emerge. Uh, and, and then ev- eventually, I was able to talk about it. I was able to think about it. I was able to have a bonfire without a panic attack. It took time. But in order for me to be healed, I had to sit with the pain a little bit more and, and be healed from it and be talked through it until I was finally able to grasp that that was a part of my story. It wasn't my entire story. I was able to look back on it with new eyes and begin to see that God was moving in the middle of that chaos, in the middle of that huge disruption, God was still moving. And this is what Matthew wants us to see with Mary and Joseph and Jesus fleeing to this place of pain. When it comes to our disruptions in our lives, sometimes we have to go back to the experience in order to find God's wholeness in the middle of it. It doesn't mean that you allow the bad things to happen to you. It's not permission for people to hurt you. Sometimes it's simply, okay, God, show me where you were in the middle of all of this. I want to see where you were through this. You didn't abandon me. You were with me. You were protecting me. And if I want to experience that wholeness and the healing and the redemption that I deeply desire, I need to start in the place of pain. If God wants, wants to be, if God is with us, then he is with us where it hurts. If God is with us, he is with us where we suffered. If God is with us, he is with us in the misery just as much as he's with us in the comfort. Sometimes the disruptions will bring us the fulfillment that we're looking for. Sometimes the disruptions that we're looking for come, or the disruptions that we have will bring us the fulfillment that we need. God will use the past pains and, and, and weave them into his redeeming story. It happens all through the Bible. 
Abraham embarrasses himself in front of a man named Abimelech, and then he has to go back to Abimelech in order for his story to, to continue. Moses murders a guy in Egypt, flees to the furthest part that he can go, and then God says, hey, Moses, let's go back to Egypt. Ah, uh, God, do you know I'm wanted? I can't go back there. Joseph, or yeah, Joseph has to go face to face with his brothers who sold him into slavery. And he's face to face with them one morning. Jacob betrays Ishmael, runs away. And then he has to come face to face with Ishmael. David, that very throne room that you're reigning from is the throne room where you had to dodge a spear one day because someone was trying to kill you. Peter, you denied Christ three times and now you're having breakfast with him on the beach. Awkward. Peter, you don't like Gentiles. Guess what? You're going to go have lunch with Cornelius. Paul, you used to go into synagogues to kill people. Now you're going to go into synagogues and tell them about Jesus. Do you see the pattern that's all throughout Scripture? These places of pain, God calls you right into the middle of it and says, watch what I can do here. Don't avoid it, but watch what I can do. Watch the beauty that I can make from this. I will bring redemption to the darkest parts of your life if you let me. And that if is a big if because we have to have the courage to go. Places of pain, places of messiness, places of disruption, God can use to them to become places of hope. But the key to seeing the redemption is responding to them. In verse 15 in Matthew 2, they stayed there until the death of Herod. It was around 4 BC, if we want to get technical. And so it was fulfilled. What the, what the Lord said through the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. The disruption God uses for protection for Jesus, protection for Joseph, protection for Mary. He protects them using disruption. This could be a whole other thing. Sometimes our disruption is actually our protection. How many times were you disrupted and then three weeks later you look back and go, oh my goodness, I was going to be there and that happened and I wasn't. It's not... All, sometimes it's coincidence. Sometimes it's God saying, I'm going to protect you from this, from this what's going on. Sometimes disruptions are protections. But Matthew is sure to point this out. He's telling us that there's a new king of the Jews in town. And this king of the Jews is going to lead Israel in every place where Israel failed. Uh, Jesus is going to come out of Egypt just like Israel came out of Egypt with Moses. He's going to lead them into a new way of living. He's going to lead them into a new promised land. Not just promised land of the physical land, but a promised land of peace with the Lord. A promised land of the gift of his spirit, a comfort and union with God. He's going to lead them to this new way of life, and that's what's promised. He's going to lead us all out of our exile and slavery of pain into the hope and completeness that comes only when Jesus comes into our lives. This is the promised land that Jesus is leading to. This is what Matthew's getting at. This king of the Jews, you can follow Herod, or you can follow Jesus. You can follow Herod and avoid, or you can follow Jesus and surrender. All of this shows us that though our stories are full of pain, and though we weep, and though we mourn, and though we're confused, though we're tired, though we're frustrated, the story of Jesus shows that God will bring us deliverance in the places where we thought deliverance will never live. This is the hope of Advent. 
And it's not pretty sometimes. It's messy. Jesus comes into our picture-perfect nativity scene of our heart and says, there's some rearranging that we need to do, and it's going to get sloppy for a while, but watch what I can do in the middle of it all. I I can bring peace to your storm. Your disruption is not the end of your story. It's probably pretty close to the beginning. And the discipline is to watch how God is going to work in the middle of it all. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you redeem, you restore, you bring beauty from our ashes. The places where we thought death reigned, you bring life. The places where we weep and mourn, you come and say, come out of the tomb, you're alive. And God, give us eyes to see these disruptions as invitations invitations into your way of living. Lord, there's pain in this room. There's people going through things. There's things that are known, things that are unknown, things that are still being sorted out. And Lord, I pray that in these times, in these difficult times, you would be close. When there's times we have no answers, you would bring peace And there's times where there's uh, anger, which are being love. Lord, you didn't come to solve all of our problems, but you came to give us peace in the middle of all of them. And that your love and your grace and your joy is seen throughout them and is experienced throughout them. And you lead us to a deeper walk with you. Lord, we thank you for that hope. We thank you for your peace. In Jesus' name, amen.